Welcome to another episode of Bears, The Bar and Beyond the Baylor Who Law Podcast. And in this week, our guest is Brian Sullivan. Brian is a graduate of Stephen F. Austin and also Texas Tech Law School. And he now works at the Texas as the de- sorry as the Deputy General Counsel uh, for the Texas Hotel and Lodging Association. It's a bit of a mouthful, but thanks for thanks for joining <laughs> us, Brian. You're very welcome. That's why we have the acronym in the business. T H O L A. It is, yeah. <laughs> tell us, tell us a bit about your your college experience. What did you What did you study? Well, it's kind of a, a long and windy road, really, if you take it all the way back, because I ended up changing my major multiple times. So for those of the students who are listening, you know, to the podcast episode, please be rest assured that if you change your course throughout your college studies, that is okay. And, you know, I managed to still get out in the traditional four years by doing summer classes and, and also getting some work experience along the way that kind of informed my decisions. But at the end of the day, I ended up graduating with a double major, a dual degree in communication studies with an emphasis in public speaking and sociology. Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer at that point or was that something you didn't discover until a little later on? I absolutely did not know, especially kind of coming into my senior year that I wanted to be an attorney. Uh-huh. I, I had no lawyers in my family. I was really kind of the first the first batch of you, if you will, part of the first batch to go to college in my family. So this is all kind of a new world to us and to me. But what happened is I I got involved in student government while I was an undergrad and eventually became student body president my senior year. And that was really what changed it for me is when I got to really interact with the leaders of not just the university, but our city and even some of the statewide leaders by virtue of you know, my capacity representing students, it really opened my eyes to this reality that, you know, at least in our United States and, and having a license to practice law, that really opens a lot of doors um, by way of being a professional in many different industries or sectors. You know, and I know we'll get into some of this later, but you know, I've had the opportunity to work in in government at the federal level. I've worked, you know, in-house for private for-profit corporation. I've worked at a private law firm. And now I work for a nonprofit statewide trade association. So, you know, my law degree has really allowed me to do all those things. We will, I definitely want to jump into that journey uh, a little later on, but tell us a little bit about what college was like for you. Did you feel like you kind of had a handle on how to study well when you got there, or did you have to learn some some tough lessons along the way on things like time management and how to study and those kind of things? Of course, yeah. My experience with studying while I was an undergrad was really, you know, an apples versus oranges comparison to law school because, you know, when you go to law school, and I think this is true for really any law school across the country, part of the um, the training ground that it is is really giving you more information and more homework and more to-dos than you might feel like you can handle at first. And it's kind of, it's structured to be a little bit even overwhelming at times. And and so my encouragement, you know, and sort of reflecting on my experience uh, for the benefit of the students listening, is that you really should, if you do end up going to law school, really find what works for you because you are going to see plenty of guidebooks. You're going to hear you know, plenty of advice. 
about, you know, here's the best method. Here's the way you need to approach it and do it. But that is a kitchen sink approach. You know, that we are all different in our habits and our, our, our strengths and weaknesses. And so I would just encourage you to the extent you can really kind of hone in on what works best for you. Because, you know, with my even my roommates, you know, it was very different for them than it was for me in terms of how they would approach studying and preparing for class. One of the things we talk a lot about in advising and in the, the different pre-law courses is the importance of writing well. How, how did your writing style change from your undergraduate career once you, once you did eventually get to law school? I think the first thing that comes to mind, Ben, is that it became incredibly disciplined. Mm. I mean, the, the beauty of legal writing and, and legal writing done well is that it is not just articulate, but also succinct, right? It's um, that idea of putting the time into writing something concisely that says exactly what you need it and want it to say, and nothing more. So you're not confusing you know, the audience or the jury or the judge or whoever it is that you're speaking to, in this case, of course, a professor. But it's... You know, it may not be the student's favorite thing to hear in the world, but it's absolutely true. In the practice of law, the art of writing is the most important skill you can have as a lawyer. Yeah, it can't be overstated. And even, even for litigators who spend time in court, they're still going to spend an awful lot of time writing. Yes. Did you have a, a professor that you connected with during your undergraduate career or maybe more than one that really kind of shaped your educational experience? Yes, I have one that comes to mind from undergrad who was a mentor of mine that I served as a teaching assistant for, who really kind of helped me blossom into that, that leader role I found myself at the end of my college, my college years as student body president. And he really taught me how to speak in front of crowds and how to do it with you know, no notes, no crutches, nothing of the sort, and just to be able to prepare properly and then present effectively. Now, going into law school, it's funny, it's actually my legal writing professor who is really the one that comes to mind. Um, she actually lived just a few blocks away from me, and she was so kind that she would actually invite the class, and I ended up going even uh, by myself sometimes to join her family for dinner. Uh, she would have us over, and she just really, really so obviously cared about us as people, let alone, you know, lawyers-to-be. And so she had a real impact on me while I was, you know, hundreds of miles away from my home and my family. And that really made it a wonderful time. I don't think it's possible to overstate the value of mentors. But I think, especially for undergrads, it's kind of intimidating to think about, well, how do I find a mentor and how do I ask this person to mentor me? And sometimes it's not necessarily that formal, but how, how did you go about finding mentors and, and how has it been beneficial to you apart from the example that you just gave us? There are really two things that I I've actually advised students on this in the past. I've been fortunate to be asked to speak at particular events for career, career services and career development. And really the two things that come to mind are number one, showing up. And what I mean by showing up is, you know, of course I understand these are strange times right now with the virus. But, you know, when there are events, when there are opportunities to just be a part of the mix of something that is of interest to you, you know, err on the side of saying yes. 
I mean, after all, this is a time of exploration and you're curious about what's out there and you're, you're you know, wondering about what your path may be. The best method I know of is to really just say yes and show up. And then that leads me to the second principle, which is ask great questions. You know, come prepared having done your homework on the speaker or the presenters, the panel, whatever it is, uh, the institution you're, you're visiting, whatever it may be. And then you're prepared to ask really thoughtful, intelligent questions, the answers of which yield you really helpful information, you know, as you go about your decision making. So I think showing up and asking great questions, uh, what happens is the people who you wish to be your mentors, they see that you're one of the few doing those two things. And that that's really been my experience, Ben, is I didn't you know, ask anyone in particular to mentor me or to be my mentor, but I, I was pretty good about showing up prepared and, and asking really thoughtful questions that showed them I was interested. And when you take an interest in something, you know, they are doing or they are pursuing or they're presenting, well, gosh, you know, of course, they're, they're going to want to help you out and, and hear more of what you're up to. So it's sort of an organic thing that develops, uh, at least it was in my case, by adhering to those two those two guiding principles yeah that's great advice just actually show up and engage in a meaningful way yeah so let's let's go to the end of your college career so you're about to graduate um you're entering senior year where, where were you roughly in terms of your journey to to law had you decided with some certainty that that was what you wanted to do or you're going to test the waters and get some experience first in my case, I had decided it was what I was going to do, again, kind of by virtue of my experience through student government and speaking and, and learning from other lawyers throughout the school year. But what I would advise is that for those of you who are interested to go to law school, particularly if you are someone like me who doesn't have someone in the family that's an attorney, who doesn't have you know a close uh, um, friend or otherwise that is a you know, practicing lawyer, I would highly encourage you to get some form of experience interning or, you know, clerking in some way, helping and working at a law firm or in some setting that gives you a taste of what this is like. And it's, it's so important, not just because you're kind of dipping your toes in the water of the legal world, but you really need to know what you're investing, you know, those three years and, and the money associated with paying for law school and let alone that the opportunity cost of being out of the workforce for three years. And really, this is a big undertaking. And, and I know you don't take it lightly, but I just want to remind everyone that, gosh, you know, had I clerked, let's say, at a, at a criminal defense law firm after law school, you know, I would have had a taste of something. So then when I show up in my first year of law school and take criminal law, you know, there's some context that's obviously helpful, but just the day to day of being an attorney, uh, it can vary so widely depending upon what kind of practice you have. And I just think the information is power. So the ability to have that experience behind you, I think is very, very helpful. Well, and I think the other thing too is, I think often a lot of undergrads struggle to get that experience because they're competing with law students. But one of the things you can do that doesn't really cost you anything other than time is pick up the phone and right. do, do informational interviews a little bit like what we're doing right now. Right. 
And the more attorneys you talk to, even if you're not getting those internship opportunities, the more helpful information you're finding, you just never know where those conversations might lead and they could in fact turn into an opportunity. But you're getting a little bit more of a picture so that, you, like you say, you know what this three years of hard work and tuition is going towards. Right. You know, Ben, that's a great point because uh, you're reminding me now of some of my other conversations in the past with students who had asked me, even when I was at Texas Tech and I was in law school, but we had a program where you could help with undergrads who are considering this decision. And on, you know, to your point about picking up the phone, I remember repeating this phrase several times that just consider doing what no one else will do. And if you, if you can just keep that principle, you know, front of mind, it will guide you to the right things, whether that's picking up the phone or going to an event or, you know, being on a webinar and asking great questions, whatever it is, you just let that guide you. And I think kind of the ironic beauty of that principle is that if you're doing what no one else will do, there is that much less competition, right? It's like, you know, the traditional pathways of pushing your paper forward and putting your, your name in the hopper for an opportunity, you know, that's, that's one way to, to get things done. But another way is to go, you know, a totally different path and come in through the back or the side door. So. Well, tell us, tell us that transition for you then. Did you go and get uh, some experience yourself and what did that experience look like? Or did you decide at the end of your junior year, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to law school and, and did you start that application process as a senior? I started the application process as a senior and really in my case, I was applying for a dual degree program. So I did the JD MBA program and where I went to law school, you could actually com complete that program in three calendar years. So the same amount of time, essentially, you know, three years of law school. Um, the only difference for me was I just started in May of the year I started law school. So the fall semester, you know, on the traditional calendar starts in August. Well, I'm a, I moved up to Texas Tech in May and started business school and then, and then began law school that August, three months later. So, yeah, I, I just... I knew I wanted to do it, but it was really about an attraction to that dual degree opportunity, giving me that flexibility on the back end when I graduated that I could use, you know, my pedigree in a number of different arenas. And even if I wanted to kind of flip the model on its head and go into the business world and have the law background, I saw that as a, as a big differentiator. Did you, uh, did you find that the investment of time and in this case, not, not so much extra time, but extra money. Did you, did you think it was worthwhile? I'm very glad that I did the dual degree program. And especially because I could still complete it in the three-year time frame. I mean, no doubt about it. At times, it felt like we were drinking from a fire hose, you know, my friends and I that were doing this. But, but hey, I mean, listen, you're not signing up for a walk in the park, no, no matter where you go to law school, right? You're, you're asking for this training and so, you know, again, in my case, I just wanted that versatility and, and flexibility on the back end of being able to come out with two degrees in the same amount of time. And, and that proved the right decision in my case. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to ultimately go to Texas Tech and, and then we'll start jumping into the, the law school experience itself. But why did you choose Tech? So Texas Tech, at least at the time, now keep in mind, this was, my gosh, I guess 10 years ago now, a decade ago, 
uh, at the time, they were one of the only schools, if not the only school in Texas, at least, that had that dual degree program you could complete in the same amount of time. The other thing about Texas Tech for me was that I got a, a very helpful scholarship uh, to attend the school to engage in that dual degree program. And then really kind of the third kicker, and this is something that, that Baylor Law School very much shares in common with Texas Tech, is their advocacy program. They have one of the best advocacy programs in the country. And, you know, at the time, I really thought I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to litigate cases and speak to juries for a living and be on my two feet in the courtroom making my way. So those are kind of the, the main factors, I guess you could say. And it was somewhat of a calculation. I had the opportunity to go to other law schools. Um, but again, I couldn't get that dual degree in three years. It may have costed more money. And I was really looking for a, a training ground in the courtroom. What was that first year like? Because I know we, you mentioned earlier that the, uh, you know, we talked about apples and oranges, undergrad versus law school. And it, and it is, it's just more of everything. Um, what did you, how did you go about adapting to the new style of class and the, the study style and, and that 100% exam at the end of the semester rather than kind of little touch points throughout the semester? Yes, yes. And this is where the procrastinators will really feel the pain. <laughs> and hey, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone, you know, next to me. I'm by no means uh, perfect when it comes to spreading things out throughout the semester. But what I will say is, oh my gosh, the people in my class that were really diligent week in, week out, you know, about reviewing their, say, just reviewing your notes, you know, when they're fresh and top of mind, the same day you take those notes, there's a certain uh, beauty to retention, you know, the brain's ability to capture that information, to hold it and store it for a later day. I mean, there were just little kind of golden nuggets like that, that I never really had to do in undergrad. And so, you know, at the same time as I was trying my best, I was kind of looking around and seeing what my most successful peers were doing and, and adapting little pieces from their toolkit as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was information overload. The first semester, in my case, was the hardest of my entire three years. But, you know, as you take a few reps with those final exams and you, know, you perform better on one than the other, you kind of figure out. Uh, you know, what is going to be the best approach for me? And I can't emphasize that enough for me because, I mean, the person who graduated, you know, top of my class uh, studied, you know, differently than I did. And maybe they'd be a better person to interview for study habits. But what I will say is the way they studied, it never would have worked for me anyway. And so I wasn't going to try to replicate something that just wasn't going to jive with how I needed to absorb the information. I'll give you one, one quick example, Ben. When I was studying for the bar exam, what I realized is that for me, instead of just um, reading through all of the notes and outlines and trying to really uh, cement that material in my head, what really, really helped me, especially after three years of courtroom development, was speaking it aloud. And that's something I had never even done one time in undergrad. I never even did it one time my first year of law school. But what I realized by the end of it was, oh my gosh, if I can be in my apartment and speak my notes out aloud, something about that connection between seeing it on the page, hearing it, 
you know, allowed coming through my ears, it just worked better for me. And so, you know, you're not going to find that written down anywhere. There's not going to be a, you know, here's how you do law school book. You have to speak your notes aloud. But that's just, again, something I learned along the way. That's, that's a really good tip. Um, and that's worth paying attention to, folks. Uh, tell us about your process of looking for a job when you get to that, you're getting towards the end of your time in law school. What did that look like? And, and where did you jump off first um, following law school? Yeah, absolutely. So following law school, I chose to stay in the city where I was had just graduated from in Lubbock, there at Texas Tech. And the way I got my job is actually through one of my coaches who had coached a team on which I participated, a mock trial team at the law school. And so, you know, when you participate in advocacy teams in law school, whether it's moot court or mock trial or client counseling, negotiations, there's a number of different opportunities, arbitration. Oftentimes what happens is that when you practice, local lawyers from the community will come and serve as guest judges for your practice sessions. And they will give you tips and pointers and help, you know, train you better for the next, for the next practice. It's just a really kind of, at least where I went to law school, it was a really beautiful synergy between the local legal community and the law school. And they really wanted to help out the students. So I, I was the beneficiary of that. And one of my coaches uh, recommended me to a local attorney who was actually seeking to sort of transition to more of a part-time practice for himself as he looked toward retirement. And, you know, hire someone who was, you know, really eager and you know, busting out of the gates, ready to go uh, to litigate cases. So it was a really funny thing because when I sat down with my, my soon-to-be boss at that time, you know, he, he had a stack of files. I don't know. It was probably a foot-thick stack of files. I'm not sure if he was trying to intimidate me or what, but <laughs> he just kind of put them on his desk and he said, Brian, here's the thing. I'm, this is a real deal. I'm not, I'm not making this up. He said, Brian, here's the thing. I don't want to have to wear a suit anymore. <laughs> And every single one of these files in this stack, I think has a legitimate chance to go to trial across the street at the courthouse. He said, would you be interested in taking over this, you know, these clients? Is that something that you'd be happy to sign up for? And with a straight face, I of course said, you know, absolutely. I mean, I had been trained to go to the courtroom and litigate cases. And this was a dream opportunity for me. It was at a boutique law firm, a small shop with uh, four lawyers total and a few support staff. But yeah, that was, that was a, an ideal opportunity for me all because, you know, someone who had kind of organically became a mentor of mine, my coach recommended me to one of his colleagues. What was what was that like to have that many trials? Because they're, they're not easy to prepare for on their own, let alone a stack. What, what was that first year or so like? This is very true. This is very true. So as the students will find out if they choose to embark upon the, the lawyer journey, as we say, you can have a case that you've worked up for many months. Sometimes big cases, of course, can take years. But you can have a case that you've done a lot of work on. And the best analogy I have for it is it's like a fireworks show, 
right? There's a whole lot of preparation. There's a whole lot of uh, careful consideration that goes into preparing for that ultimate display, the trial itself. And then you get to the courthouse and, you know, it's a fireworks show, right? And there's always a bit of unknown, you know, what is the other side going to present? How are the witnesses going to respond on the stand? What kind of rulings will the judge give? But then when it's over, it's like, oh my gosh, we're back to square one with a new case. And the amount of cases that I had, by the way, that ended up settling before we ever got to open those courthouse doors, I mean, it was a majority of those files. And everyone worked those cases up until we got to the point where, you know, one lawyer or the lawyer on the other side, you know, or one client or client on the other side, vice versa, they had some tough decisions and calls to make. Are we going to chance this with a jury or a judge? Or are we going to find, you know, a resolution amongst ourselves or we control the outcome? And that's really becoming more and more common these days as clients seek to be, you know, effective or cost effective, I should say with the resources, it just makes a lot of sense a lot of the time to try to find a resolution amongst the parties themselves. But yeah, I mean, litigating those cases and, uh, you know, working those files up, sometimes it was almost like a big disappointment. You didn't go to do, you know, you didn't get your day in court. You didn't get to, uh, to do the fireworks show, but you know, it's not about what we play it either. You, you can't kind of prepare for trial and hope that it will settle because it could go to trial and you, you have to still put in all of that work, all of that preparation, and then, you know, sometimes days before the trial starts. That's absolutely correct. That's a, I actually had my first jury trial. I had the opposing counsel offer to settle the case when the jury had gone out for deliberation. So his client had wow. instructed the lawyer to approach our side and propose a settlement offer. You know, we felt good about our position and the case we had lodged. We felt good and confident about where the jury was probably going to be. So we, we declined to settle and, and the jury came back in our favor. But it just goes to show you that, you know, it really, you're not finished until you cross that finish line. And you don't know if that's going to be settlement or trial. Help us understand, because I think certainly when I was in law school and in private practice, the perception was that it was it was a lot of corporate lawyers who ultimately went in-house or transactional lawyers who ultimately went in-house and a lot of little litigation side of things would be operated by panel firms. So a, a group of firms or companies will have a contract with to send their, their work to. But you move from a litigation practice um, to an in-house role uh, with the Texas Hotel and Lodging Association. So how did that come about? And how was that different to being in a law firm? Okay, so how did that come about? Well, as most every opportunity I've ever had, um, it's kind of, I try to think of the right word for it because when I'm encountering this through the years, it's been very discouraging, to be quite frank. But looking back on it, it's almost comical. And what I mean is, I have never gotten any of the opportunities I've pursued and, and engaged with. I have never gotten them by putting forth a traditional application. That's not, that's not something I'm you know, boasting about. It's not a badge of pride. It's, it's just a fact in, of my experience is I quite literally have never you know, clicked submit on something and had it work out. 
And I kind of think that's, that's kind of funny in my case, because the way that I went from my litigation firm to in-house, you know, at 27 years old is again, by virtue of a recommendation. And what happened is um, the CEO of our organization was in the market for adding an additional attorney. And he met a friend of mine at a social gathering. And this was actually in Austin, uh, where I grew up and all my network is. I was still practicing law in Lubbock at the time, of course. But this happened at essentially a holiday party. And I was recommended to the CEO. And he said, hey, you know, Brian's actually going to be coming in town uh, to, visit to visit family over the holidays. You know, maybe y'all could meet. And so the CEO said, yes, please give him my number, right? So I called the CEO and sure enough, two weeks later, you know, I'm in his office. And again, preparation is absolutely essential because I didn't know what this meeting was going to be. I didn't know if it would just be a casual meet and greet. I didn't know if it was a traditional interview. He was a bit ambiguous uh, and I didn't want to prod too much because I hadn't even met the guy yet. <laughs> but uh, all that to say, I showed up, you know, as we say in Texas, suited and booted and ready for whatever might come my way. And sure enough, that night, what, what, it, what I thought would be sort of a 30 to 45 minute you know, meet and greet ended up rolling into a two and a half hour session with the CEO in which he asked me some very tough questions and really kind of held me to the, to the fire there and then called me about three hours later and offered me the job. Wow. So, One of the things I think it's important to know, you talked about how you didn't have to apply for these jobs. They kind of just fell in your feet, fell in your up. I think it's really important for students to recognize that they actually didn't just fall in your lap. You did a lot of work in developing friendships and relationships and putting yourself in positions where you can have these opportunities come your way. They didn't just fall from the sky. Right. And, and your career in so far as we've talked about it right now is an example of that you know you you put in those you put in that effort you show up you take part you build relationships and those opportunities came as a consequence of that absolutely what what do you do what does what does an in-house lawyer do help help us help our listeners understand what an in-house lawyer actually is yeah so and let me kind of differentiate just kind of what i do because in-house lawyers traditionally are those that will work for for-profit entities, companies, and they have one client, right? The corporation. Now, in my case, I'm an in-house attorney for a statewide association. We are a nonprofit organization, and we have members all across the state of Texas. So we have approximately 4,500 member lodging properties all across Texas, and we have a legal team within our state association that serves the interests of those members. Now, when I say serves the interests, we do have day-to-day -day inquiries that, you know, inbound phone calls, emails, inquiries, where we help advise our members on, you know, legal issues that they confront, whether that's employment law, tax, personal injury, you know, of course, during the COVID crisis, um, everything about, you know, the, the proper protocols to follow given the state mandates and requirements, local orders, you know, CDC guidelines, all this sort of thing. So we help them with those operational matters. 
but I really did go from litigating cases and being in the courthouse to my job really flipping on its head and in a lot of ways trying to keep my clients out of the courthouse. So, you know, I'm trying to provide them with best practices and, uh, you know, effective operational advice to keep them away from any sort of litigation to make sure they can worry about bigger things and, and you know, making a, a business of it and they're earning a profit for themselves. Almost preventing problems rather than defending suits. That is absolutely correct. Yes. Now, another piece of what we do at the association level is we do lobby for our industry. We are the voice of the hotel industry in Texas. So when the legislature convenes, you know, the Capitol in Austin, we are serving as expert witnesses. You know, we are lobbying capital leaders and committees on legislation that either benefits the travel and tourism industry and thus the hotels or has a negative impact on our industry. And now kind of the, the luxury I have been is that because I represent the, the lodging business, there aren't a lot of opponents of tourism. Right? <laughs> it's not really a hot button issue. Um, tourism is actually, by the way, the number two economic driver of our state budget next to oil and gas. Wow. So there's a lot of, you know, and capital leaders know this, there's a lot of importance to making sure that you know, we keep tourism healthy and alive across the state. So they want to be passing laws that don't you know, detract from that. But all that to say, my job as an in-house lawyer is a little bit different than most who work in private corporations and serve one client, whereas I serve one industry. And there really is a big distinction there. I have not worked particularly for one corporation, uh, with a law license at least. I've done it as a law clerk. But, but yeah, that's a little bit of a different endeavor. It, it is too, because I think a lot of students are really attracted to the idea of policy work. And you're in one of these unique roles where you're giving advice, you're giving legal advice, but you're also helping to shape and lead changes in policy as well, which is a really unique combination. Yes, yes. What well, is let, me, let me encourage the students, Ben. Let me just encourage the students right there. For those who may listen to this episode and think to themselves, you know, gosh, where do I ever find an opportunity like that? I mean, how do you uncover something like that? Let me just encourage you that, for every business, there is an association, right? I mean, we've got like the Texas Deer Hunters Association, right? <laughs> They're just down the road. I'm, I'm not trying to be funny. It's just a fact. We have an association for everything. So if this is a type of role where you get to mix advocacy in a legislative sense and, and legal work, you know, and even traveling to go visit your members, just let me encourage the audience that there is an association for everything and all you have to do is research it. What is a, what does a day look like? Do you find that you do fairly regular hours? Are they a little unpredictable? Are we talking kind of, is it a nine to five or is it, a, is it kind of that longer hours that a lot of people associate with a, with a law career? My schedule is, I would say definitely better than I experienced in private practice, it is more predictable with one really glaring exception, or I guess two now given the COVID crisis. The one glaring exception that first came to mind was during the legislative sessions. When the Capitol is in session in Texas, which as many of you are probably aware, happens every other year for 140 days. We have a part-time legislature. And with Texas, 
you know, and, and the economic powerhouse that it is and as large as it is, this for the state to try to fit all of its business into 140 days every every odd numbered year, you can imagine the uh, the sprint and marathon that it feels like all at the same time in odd number of years. So yeah, that that's definitely an outlier where we are I mean, everyone is short on sleep, not just our industry, but everyone that works at the Capitol, every other association, everyone who has a stake in shaping policy, you know, people kind of like block off and people plan their families around this stuff. It's like, let's not have a child during the legislative session is sort of the running joke. But, uh, but no, otherwise, otherwise it's a very comfortable schedule. I'm very blessed to have, you know, this type of opportunity, especially you know, at this point in my career, to be able to not have to work, you know, at just crazy hours sometimes, uh, bar that legislative arena that kind of commands it. And then during the COVID crisis, of course, we've actually really never been busier. Uh, looking back on March, April, and coming into May, when this was all really, you know, new in March, of course, by way of policy decisions being made by government. But Gosh, I mean, hotels, they're trying to figure out how can we safely, you know, have the traveling public be in our facilities? How can we implement the guidelines from the CDC in a transient business where people are in and out all the time? Um, there are just a myriad of concerns that our business operators, you know, have to confront day to day. And our saying is that, look, we serve the hotel business. You guys never close. You're open 24-7, 365. And especially right now when you need, you know, your lawyers and, and your legal team and, you know, your industry association most, we want you to know that our hours are your hours. And so we have had a lot of work. We have had a lot of after traditional hour inquiries. And we've had to provide a lot of support. But, you know, this is why we exist. If we, if we aren't up to bat, when our members need us most, then, you know, we really shouldn't be playing at all. That's a really good insight. Um, I guess, it's, I mean, it sounds to me like you really love what you're doing right now and it sounds like the, the perfect fit for you. Uh, but when you look back on your career, are there some things that you would do differently? Yes, and it actually goes back to one of your original questions about getting experience prior to law school. I just had no idea what I was getting into. Now, thankfully it worked out, but you know, hindsight being 2020, you know, if possible, I would encourage everyone to get some form of experience before, you know, making that big commitment of multiple years and, and obviously money and otherwise to go, to go to get this training. I mean, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of jokes about law school, right? I'm sure the students have heard many of them, but one of them that sticks in my mind is if you think about the folks that apply to go to law school, you don't have to have any particular undergraduate degree, right? It's not like going to medical school where you have a biology degree or chemistry or, you know, pre-med or some sort like that. No, you get everything under the sun. I mean, we had art majors, we had chemistry majors, we had music majors, we had business majors. There's no criteria other than, you know, your, your LSAT score, your GPA, your credentials, your application, but you can have studied anything under the sun in undergrad. So I think I saw people that showed up in our first year of law school 
and realize maybe six months into it or even a year into it, hey, this really isn't what I want to do with my career. And unfortunately, some of them realize that two years into it, and now they feel, you know, pot committed, I guess you could say, to finish the journey and to go ahead. They already spent that two years of tuition money. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I I don't mean to scare anyone. I just want to be real about, you know, the circumstances. And it's almost like because you don't have to have prerequisites to to apply to be in law school, you really need to be doubly... uh, sure about the the steps you've taken before you submit your applications that you do feel like you have some amount some degree of a taste for the legal field and really your interest in, in going into it aside from just not knowing what to do next and it would be a helpful degree to have i mean one, one of the things we say to students is know before you go have okay. some sense of what it's like and a sense of whether whether or not you actually want to be a lawyer right because right. uh, it doesn't mean it's the only thing you'll ever do, but there's a really good chance you're going to spend a substantial amount of your career at least practicing law. And if, it, if you realize two years in that that's not what you want to do, you don't have a great deal of flexibility Right. at the two-year mark. And then I'd also just plug right there, Ben, that was another reason why I got my MBA at the same time, is I felt like I didn't have all the assurance I would want going in but I knew that if I had the business, the advanced business degree, that that would be kind of, you know, if everything else went sideways, that would be kind of my saving grace in the investment. That's, uh, I, I, don't, I want to be respectful of, uh, of your time. So I, I have one question. This is a question that I, I encourage all of our students to ask when they do those informational interviews. Okay. And that is, what advice would you have for someone like me a hypothetical undergraduate student who wants to get some experience? Because we talked about how, uh, at the beginning of the episode, how tough it can be for undergrads to get law firm experience because they're competing with those law students who have more training. And if they like them, they don't have to wait as long to be able to bring them in as fee earners. So, so what advice would you have for undergrads who are really wanting to get some of that experience that you've encouraged them to get, but are finding it perhaps a little tough to get a foot in the door at a law firm? So Ben, I hope this doesn't sound like a crazy answer, but it's the God's honest truth what comes to mind is that if if I were advising someone, where do you start? What do you do? How do you make it happen? I would go to the courthouse. I would go to the courthouse. I would meet the staff. I'd I'd ask to speak with a judge. I'd say, I'm a a college student. I'm interested in the law. Uh, I really want to try to gain some experience in some capacity before I go to law school. Because the judges, they know all the lawyers. The staff know them even better. (laughs) And so I think, again, just kind of what you commented on about my experience, these things didn't fall out of the sky into my lap. You know, I showed up and and I tried to forge those relationships knowing that, you know, nothing bad could come from that. It was really only the potential good upsides that I, that I was set to encounter. So not to be facetious, I don't want to sound, you know, trite, but really, I mean, if this is something that you're seriously wanting to gain some experience and you feel like you're hitting dead ends through traditional means, get, get non-traditional with it and, and go meet somebody. That's great advice. That's great advice. Brian, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. You've had a, a fascinating journey and you've, you've gotten to a, a, 
outside of private practice in a time frame that a lot of lawyers, certainly when I was in law school, could never have dreamed of. Um, and so students, if, you've, if you'd like to find out more about the in-house path, if you'd like to explore other areas of the law, please don't be afraid to reach out. You can contact uh, us at prelaw at baylor.edu with any requests for upcoming episodes. Uh, but Brian, thank you so much for your time. You're most welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. May please depart. This case concerns itself with the conviction of a defendant. Thank you, gentlemen. The case is submitted.